Amen. Thank you to the worship team for leading us again in worship in such a way I think it lends itself so well to the text where we're at today. Children, you can go on down to Children's Church and play practice. Uh, Children's Church meets in the youth room this morning. So, Well, welcome back. Uh, we took a little diversion last week from Hebrews and Colossians uh, as we were wrapping up the men's retreat. And um, this week we're back in Colossians, picking up where we left off um, in Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14. Let me read those verses for us. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you recall last time when we were here in the letter to the Colossians, I covered verses 1 to 8. And in that sermon, I mentioned to you that um, what we were then dealing with was just the reasons that Paul was so prayerful. We didn't even get to the content of, of Paul's prayer. That's what we're going to get to today. But by way of reminder, since our passage in verse 9 begins with a reference to that content from that earlier sermon, I'll go over just a smidgen of that. Um, that, what, that, that is what gave Paul reason for prayer So for this reason also, he says, so in a word, the thing that caused Paul to pray for the Colossians was the gospel. The gospel had reached the Colossians and it had produced fruit in their lives. And the fruit specifically mentioned were faith, hope, and love. Remember, important Epaphras, he had given a report to Paul about the faith of the Colossians and about their hope that was reserved in heaven and their love for all of the saints and in the immediately preceding verse, verse 8, he told them of their love in the Spirit. So Paul was thankful for all of this news. And it had prompted Paul and those that were with him to, uh, as it tells us in verse 3, it prompted them to give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's back in verse 3. So here in verse 9, he describes his prayer as unceasing. In other words, it was ongoing. It's not that it was perpetual or constant verbal muttering of a prayer, the sense is that the prayers were repeated and they were often. And similarly, those who pray continually today, um, uh, those who pray continually today have an ongoing consciousness of the importance of God in every aspect of their lives, every circumstance. They view all of life in relation to God. So when bad things happen... The person who prays continually should be prompted to prayers of wisdom and deliverance. When good things happen, we should be prompted toward prayers of thanksgiving and praise. And when we meet someone new, as people who pray continually, we should be interested in that person's standing with God. And we should seek out what role God may have for us in their lives and what role they may have in our lives. Again, those who pray continually view all of life in relation to God. And they seek Him in a prayerful attitude for His will. Paul uses both the words pray and ask in this verse. So of course prayer is the general term here for speaking to God. But there are different aspects to prayer. Just like there are different aspects to having a conversation. Paul here asks. And here I'm going to pause and ask God to bless this sermon. Father God, I come before you this morning thanking you for all the truth that we just sang this morning. Thanking you for the beauty of of music and meter and singing. Father, thanking you for the, the beauty of this congregation's voices collectively lifted to heaven to praise you and to thank you. You are worthy of all of these praises. 
And Father, now we come to a time in the, the, our service together where, Lord, I want to ask you to do a work in the preaching of your word. Father, would you please let the word of God sink deep into our hearts. Let it refresh our spirits and give us life again. Lord, let us draw near to you as we listen to God's word. Lord, I pray your spirit would move mightily in our midst. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Wednesday night, um, we were teaching the youth group. Pastor Eddie was teaching the youth group about the different aspects of prayer. We, we were talking about Philippians chapter 4, and we talked about the ACTS acronym. You guys familiar with the ACTS acronym? A-C-T-S, all capitals. Um, they stand for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. So there's different aspects to prayer. And so Paul had already mentioned a Thanksgiving aspect earlier in the, in the, in the, the chapter. And now he moves on to that which he's asking God for. He's asking God to supply something to the Colossians. And here's what he's asking for. He's got two priorities in his prayer for the Colossians. These two priorities reflect Paul's concern for the, the whole of the Colossians' lives, both their inward man and the outward man. He's concerned with their thoughts, and he's concerned with their behaviors. He's concerned with their beliefs and their practice. Paul's priority in his prayer for them deals with both. The first thing he asks for is inward. It's knowledge. He asks that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he says in verse 9. Paul's first concern is with that inward man, the mind, the thinking, and the knowledge that the Colossians had. And this is a normal pattern. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, this is a normal pattern in his letters. He goes into great detail at the beginnings of all of his letters explaining doctrine and then moving to how the believers ought to live in response to that doctrine. So he prayed that they may be filled. Filled, which is a word that conveys a a complete filling. It it conveys... uh, Uh, an abundant supply, a liberal supply, overflowing, up to the top and overflowing. And Paul was concerned that they may be filled in this way with the knowledge of God's will. It's the same word for filling that is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And I think this gives us a clue as to why Paul may be so concerned that they be filled in such a way with this knowledge. In John chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus is in the upper room discourse with his disciples And he sought to encourage them and to give them comfort because he says in the text in that verse that sorrow had filled their hearts. That word, pleru, had filled their hearts. He said this because sorrow had crowded out all the other senses. They were filled with sorrow. Luke 5.26, another instance where this word is used. Jesus had healed a leper and a paralytic. And the people that witnessed it were filled with fear and astonishment. In other words, it had crowded out all the other senses that they would otherwise feel. Luke 6, 11, Jesus had just healed a man with a withered hand, but it was on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees who saw it were angry. And it says there in that text, they were filled with rage. That same word is used. So they were so filled with this rage that they began plotting what they might do to Jesus, how they might end his ministry. And so this rage that they had inside crowded out all other senses. This is why Paul was concerned with the Colossians being filled with the knowledge of God's will, so that it would crowd out all the other senses that they had. Because the thing that fills your mind controls you. Your thoughts lead to actions, and your beliefs lead to practices. It matters what you think. It matters what you dwell on up here. What knowledge fills your mind? The thing that fills your mind controls you. And he prayed that they would be filled with knowledge. And this is an important term to understand that gives us a clue as to what it was that Paul was addressing in in the whole of the letter. Because it would seem that this opening prayer includes a soft sort of introductory rebuke 
to some of the thinking that was developing in the Colossians community. And that Greek word for knowledge is the word gnosis. Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, kind of like a gnu, except gnu is pronounced new, right? The G is silent, gnosis. Does that term sound familiar to you, gnosis? I think it, it probably does. If, if you study church history, it may ring a bell in your mind. Because one of the earliest theologians in church history after the apostolic era uh, was a man named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was very early in Christendom. He came as a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. So he was not far removed from the, apost- the apostolic era at all. And he wrote volumes of material that were entitled Against Heresies. You could describe Irenaeus as the first discernment blogger before blogging was a thing, right? So, and a primary heresy that he addressed in his writings was called Gnosticism. Remember that word gnosis, the Greek word for gnosis or knowledge? Here's the long title of his work. Irenaeus wrote the work Against Heresies, the Detection and the Refutation of what is falsely called knowledge. Gnosis. And so Paul, as he prays, indicates that he's very concerned with what the Colossians know. What type of knowledge are they accumulating and growing in? And he uses a special term for knowledge here in the Greek. It's not just gnosis, it's epigenosis. Sorry, I pronounced the G, I shouldn't have. Epignosis. So the prefix epi on the word gnosis, it intensifies the word knowledge. So it could, you could translate it as true knowledge or real knowledge. So knowing what emerged not long after the apostolic era... Many Bible scholars believe that what Paul was refuting in this letter to the Colossians was an early form of Gnosticism, like in its earliest infant stages. It could be that some in the Colossian church were beginning to use terms like epigenosis, epinosis, sorry, the the G silent, to describe a deeper knowledge. And uh, they were describing a deeper knowledge that the believers needed to attain that came from a different source a knowledge that came through a foreign spirituality that connected the adherents to this, 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 those seeking this knowledge to spiritual forces um, and beings that were other than Jesus. It would seem that based on much of what Paul says in this letter, that there was a danger to the Colossians pointing in this direction. The knowledge that Paul wanted the Colossians to have was a true or a real knowledge that was given them by God and God alone. They were to be in an ongoing sense passive recipients of this filling that came from God. Not some other source. He prayed that God would do this filling for them. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will. That's the content of what Paul wanted the Colossians to be filled with, was the knowledge specifically of His will. And Paul modifies this this, this phrase, this knowledge of God's will, he modifies it by saying, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So in other words, the knowledge of God's will was all the spiritual wisdom and understanding that they needed. They didn't need to seek it elsewhere. There is no knowledge deeper and truer than the knowledge of the will of God. The spiritual understanding refers to the ability of the Colossians to comprehend what it was that they learned. And the spiritual wisdom refers to the capacity to transfer that understanding to application in their lives. Understanding and applying the will of God is the pinnacle of the knowledge which the Christian can attain. The pinnacle of the knowledge that a Christian can hope to attain. The knowledge of God's will. This is that which ought to fill our minds and hearts. This is that knowledge that ought to control our lives This is the knowledge that is spiritual, but it comes from only one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, through Epaphras' ministry, had already shared with them the will of God, certain aspects of it. It was not secretive or shrouded in mystery, so as only to be obtained through mysticism or medium spirits or a special priestly class of people. The message that Paul had sent was openly proclaimed and taught out in the open in front of everybody. This message was openly exposed 
in the life and the ministry and the passion of Jesus. The events that comprised the gospel message were accomplished out in the open for all to see. And they were testified to amply by witnesses, countless witnesses that had seen it. They didn't hide it, keep the message secret to themselves. And the teachings of the apostles after Jesus ascended, they took place in the open courtyards of the temple, in open gatherings of synagogues, in open-air markets in the towns that they lived in, openly from house to house to house. It's not like they avoided places to share this message. They shared it openly in the public squares. There were not secretive by invitation only for certain elite eyes only means of transmitting the gospel. The will of God was out in the open for all to see and respond to. And the foundation of that will was the simple revelation Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 And it's the same will of God that we proclaim out in the open today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture tells us first and foremost in 1 Timothy 2.1 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Peter 3.9 this is echoed that God does not wish for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. So God's will is shared openly to all. It's not for just an elite cabal of people. God's will is for men to be saved. And moving on from this foundation, once saved, God wills that those who believe should understand what the will of the Lord is and that they would be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 17 to 18. This is God's will. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, we're told that sanctification or growing in holiness, that's God's will. For this is the will of God for you, for your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5. Other things that the Scripture reveal to us as the will of God. Being submissive to those in authority. In 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. Being submissive and serving one another. Ephesians 5. In the case of some, it's the will of God that they suffer for the gospel. That's in 1 Peter 4. For everyone, it's the will of God that we give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. If we are to know the will of God, we must desire it and press toward it. Hosea 6.3 says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. If we want to know the will of God, we must press toward the will of God and desire it. And if we're to know the will of God, we, we must be ever learning and studying the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent. Be diligent. The King James Version, I actually much prefer it here. It says, Study. Study to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. If we're to know the will of God, we must be ever learning and studying the word of God. MacArthur has a great quote here. He says, self-control is a result of mind control. And that mind control is dependent on knowledge. So let the filling of the knowledge of the will of God be the mark of your life's pursuit. This is the key to living the life that is best. And this is the direction that Paul takes in his prayer. Because now we go on to Paul's second priority. His first priority was their knowledge. Now his second priority is their living. Look what he says in verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Paul wanted them to know God's will so that they could live God's will. And Paul shows his Jewishness here in this little phrase. Because the Greek culture that Paul was in, that he ministered in, was emphatic about the importance of philosophy and abstract thought. And the end that they had in mind for all of this philosophizing was uh, wise and intelligent sounding rhetoric and speech. The Jewish mind was more concerned with the so what of knowledge. Now that I have this knowledge, so what do I do with it? What do I do with it? How does it change how I walk? And from the earliest part of the Jewish scriptures, the importance of the walk is emphasized. 
The great hero of history for the Jews was Enoch, the ancestor of Noah. And he was the one that was taken to be with the Lord and escaped death. And the reason was because he so closely walked with God. Genesis 5.22. In Genesis 17.1, Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jews, was told by God to walk before me and be blameless. The Jews were concerned with the walk that proceeded from the knowledge of God. Paul wanted the response to the knowledge of the will of God to be a walk that was worthy of the Lord. And that word worthy means of equal weight. Thus the believers are to equal the Lord's standards and and this worthy walk is described as pleasing to the Lord in all respects. In other words, it makes God happy when we walk worthy. When we know His will and do it, we walk in it, it pleases God. It's here that we've got to balance this a little bit, though. Discernment is required because let's consider this in familial terms, as if we were talking about family members. Because Paul is not saying that the Colossians needed to earn um, or work their way to acceptance to become a child of God by the walk that that they exhibited. Because they had already received full sonship when they believed the gospel. They were already sons. But they were still children of the Lord. And, so, and as a child can still displease their father when they persist in disobedience, so a child can also please their father when they obey from the heart. Isn't that true? Even though, even though that, that obedience is developing and it's growing and it's imperfect, which is just like you and me, developing, growing, imperfect, it still pleases the father. This is the image that we should see when we read this. God, like a father who smiles when his child does their best to obey out of love for their daddy. So does God smile on those who seek to know his will and obey it? God smiles when we do that. And this worthy life that makes God smile is described in four characteristics. Let me give these to you so you can write them down. The four characteristics of the worthy life are, one, they are fruitful. The worthy life is fruitful. The worthy life is, number two, growing. Number three, the worthy life is strengthened. And number four, the worthy life is thankful. Let's go to that first one. Verse 10, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. And fruit here refers to the nourishing and the reproductive aspects of the Christian's worthy life. Because a plant or a vine that produces fruit is a food source and it's also a seed source right? A food source and a seed source. So the nourishing aspect, thus the fruit we exhibit in Christ nourishes and it feeds the souls of those around us and it flavors our lives in a desirable way. Sometimes we become sweetness to those within God's family and sometimes to those without from God's family, we taste like bitterness to them. But either way, there's a nourishment to what the fruit of the worthy life is. Have you ever experienced the phenomenon of being nourished as a result of your time here at Grace with, your, with God's family? I, I hope that this is your regular experience, honestly, um, when you come here, that you feel fed and filled and nourished on the truth that's taught. But also I hope you're nourished relationally with your brothers and sisters who love you and feed you with their encouragement the fruits of attitude and service that bring health and vitality to your own life. I hope you're fed that way. Have you ever been around someone who just nourishes your soul? That brother or sister that you just love to be around because they invigorate you. You feel more alive. You feel happier. You feel blessed just to be with that person. Their zest for life and their zest for Christ, it rubs off on you. And it draws you closer to them. Their walk with God strengthens your own walk. It's very likely that these folks are walking worthy. They're fruitful. They have a fruitful life. So the nourishing aspect is very important. But also the second aspect of that fruit is also important. That reproductive aspect. Because it's nourishment, but it also contains the seed. And that seed, when it planted, when it's planted, it flourishes into other fruit-bearing plants. 
And this seed is the gospel message. The seed is the gospel. Now, when we eat fruit, we normally eat around the seeds, don't we? If one gets in our mouth, we spit it out. I remember eating watermelon as a kid during the summer, and it was always sort of a a, a mixed experience of pleasure and annoyance back in the day. Because that fruity pulp of a watermelon is delicious. Some of you may not like watermelon, but I do. That fruity pulp was delicious. And you couldn't take a bite, though, without getting a mouthful of seeds. Do you remember this back in the day when watermelons actually had seeds? Uh, it was always a joke that if you accidentally chewed, chewed one up and swallowed it, you'd grow watermelon in your stomach. And so as a kid, you're like, uh, I couldn't carry a watermelon in my stomach. So you dutifully spit them out, right? Nowadays, we buy watermelons and they're seedless. And, and I love them. I love seedless watermelons. The annoyance is gone. But I always marvel. How in the world do they grow seedless watermelons? That doesn't make sense without any seeds. I mean, isn't that amazing that they can do that? It's and I assume that the way they do it, it's by they artificially modify the plants through some selective germination or something, and they produce that desirable genetic trait, you know, that um, that pr- produces a seedless fruit. I have no idea how they do it, but I imagine that's some of what they do. But here's the thing: that can't be sustainable, right? Without actual watermelons, vines that produce actual watermelons with seeds in that fruit. If that doesn't happen, if all watermelons in the world were somehow seedless, watermelons would soon become extinct, wouldn't they? They'd be gone. I think there's a lesson for us here. Because sadly, there's many Christians today who want to eat and exhibit the nourishing aspects of the fruit of the Spirit but they want to spit out and discard the seeds of the gospel. And that seed of the gospel is that which proliferates and spreads that fruit and makes it possible to begin with. A person never receives the Spirit of God and its fruit without believing on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It never happens. But like young Eric eating a watermelon who was annoyed by the mouthful of seeds... Some Christians seem annoyed and sadly even embarrassed by the gospel message. Let me tell you something here real quick. This is the terrible truth of progressive Christianity. Mark this, guys. This is the terrible truth of progressive Christianity that plagues the church of Jesus Christ today. With their emphasis on social justice, they seek to feed the world on the seedless fruit of of liberalism. Instead of love, they feed their adherents with the legalism of social and political obligation. Instead of joy, they offer discontent and anger. Instead of peace, they offer the anxiety of activism and protest. Instead of patience, they demand immediate action and change. Instead of kindness, they show harshness toward those who disagree with them. Instead of gentleness, they apply constant pressure to achieve their aims. Instead of faithfulness, they urge the divorce and the separation from the heritage of faith and family from which they were born. They discard the old in favor of the new. And instead of self-control, they glorify and approve of licentiousness and sexual immorality And instead of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus, they feed their students with a distorted and wrong-headed notion of salvation by good works. And it's their own definition of good, not God's. Children, run from this lie. It is a lie. This is the terrible truth of progressive Christianity. They seek to feed the world on the seedless fruit of liberalism. The worthy, fruitful walk that God would have you exhibit is both nourishing and reproductive. It feeds and it plants the seed of the gospel in the hearts of those who are fed on that fruit. Any other seedless fruit is destined for extinction. Amen. The worthy walk that God smiles at bears fruit in every truly good work. The end in mind for the good work is not the good work itself. It's the fruit's 
seed spread in that good work. That's the point. It is the fruit produced by the gospel, not the deed itself. So, that was number one. The worthy life is a fruitful life. Number two, the worthy life is a growing life. And what do we grow in? We grow in the knowledge of God. Paul prays that their worthy walk would be characterized by increasing in the knowledge of God. Obedience to the word or will of God brings further knowledge of God himself. And I love how Psalm 111 verse 10 puts this. Some of you may have heard me quote this before. I love this psalm, just this, this verse in particular. I love it. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So, So there's a certain degree of understanding or comprehension that must precede obedience. It has to, we have to understand something before we can obey it, right? In other words, in order to obey a command, we got to at least at a surface level understand what the command is. But there's a deeper level of understanding or knowledge that can only come after obedience. This is why the psalmist says, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. In other words, the what of the command is understood and then obeyed, then that obedience leads us to an understanding that goes beyond the what question and perhaps to an understanding of the why and the how. We see the wisdom of God in the obedience. We see the wisdom of the command when we follow it. And that was unknown to us before we obeyed. But as we walk worthy, as we bear fruit, we grow and increase in the knowledge of God. The one who walks worthy grows in the good work they do, but also in the understanding that they have of God. Their knowledge moves from the the cerebral to the experiential. It moves from the mental to the relational. The move is from knowing about God to knowing God himself. In the arena of obedient service, the Christian increases in their knowledge of the Lord and His will. So that was number two. The number three characteristic of a worthy life is that it is a strengthened life. A strengthened life. He says in verse 11, he prays that the Colossians would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Paul wants the Colossians to have a dynamite. That's the Greek word dynamos. Uh, or some variant thereof, a dynamite uh, spiritual strength and power that has as its source the glorious might of Almighty God. And the word strengthened is, is a present passive participle. Don't you love grammar? And what it does, it indicates a continuous action of God upon or within the believer. MacArthur notes this on this point. I think it was very good. Um, God's power described in and for the believer here in this passage is not like a rocket booster that just gives an initial boost and then leaves the craft to fly on its own. It's a limitless fuel that propels the worthy walk of a Christian toward perseverance. This is what Paul has in mind here, a persevering strength. This limitless spiritual power from God is modified by a phrase that gives the purpose of this strengthening And that phrase is for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience in verse 11. And you know, in our lives today, we don't have nearly as much need for strength as we once did, at least not in the physical sense. Things come to most of us very easily, don't they, by and large? I mean, even those with less financial means in our society don't have a hard time finding food and clothing most of the time. In our society, we have it pretty easy. And even many of our vocations of a more manual nature have a mechanized and automated way of doing things that in years past required a a high degree of strength and endurance. But that's not so true today. Today, strength of physique is developed not for practical reasons or for necessity. Most of the time, it's developed for vanity and show right? We want to look good. We want to look strong. That's why so many young pastors like to wear those nice form-fitting polo shirts when they preach that subtly showcase their pecs and their biceps, right? You've seen them. You've seen those guys. 
Look at how good we've gotten in our tailoring to this vanity. There's literally a shirt company that specializes in making shirts that hide the dad bod. You guys know what the dad bod is, right? That ubiquitous gut that, that, spe- that, uh, that comes on men in middle-aged years. That's, these shirts are tailored to be looser fitting in the midsection and tighter on the pecs and the biceps. I, I kid you not. So that even a chunk like me can fool a woman into thinking he's good looking. You know? It's childish, isn't it? It's a ruse. It's a childish ruse for a spoiled and a soft generation. And that's what we are. We are a spoiled and a soft generation. That's not to say I wouldn't wear one of those shirts if Mandy thought I looked good in one, you know. That was, I probably would. So, Christmas list. I'm kidding. You know, I remember as a child watching bodybuilding contests on TV, and I remember being blown away by the, the vain, bulging definition of the muscles on those guys. I mean, they just ripped. Humongous. I remember um, loving watching the Rocky movies when I was a boy. And I always liked Rocky Three and Rocky Four more, and the reason I liked those more is because Sylvester Stallone was more ripped than he was in, in Rocky One and Two. And I remember watching He-Man as a kid. Did anybody watch He-Man as a kid? I collected all those action figures. You know, strength is for show in our world. We're just, it's not for the stage in God's economy. God doesn't give us strength for any trivial reasons so that we look good and we look strong. That's not why Paul prayed that the Colossians would be strengthened. The strength of God is not for this stage. It's for the battlefield. We're strengthened for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. In other words, testing and trial and warfare are in our future. The circumstances that will come in the life of a worthy walking Christian will require the ability to endure and bear up under the weight of difficulty. The conflict and the aggression that those in the world will bring upon, bring upon the children of God are going to, is going to require a patient calmness that prevents us from being provoked into responding in like manner. This steadfastness and patience can only come from the glorious might of God. You will need strength for a reason and for a purpose, not to feed your vanity or your pride. You'll need strength from above to persevere and to finish strong. This is Paul's prayer. So the fourth characteristic of a worthy life is that it's a thankful life. Joyously giving thanks to the Father, Paul says. Again, in youth group on Wednesday night, Pastor Eddie was teaching on Philippians 4, and we spent extra time on the important verses of verses 6 and 7 because they're so often incited to use to comfort. It says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now those of you who are astute and paying close attention, notice that I misquoted those verses. On purpose. I left something very important out. Two simple words. Do you know what they were? With thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Yes, you're astute. Nice work. (laughs) We're very good at going to prayer and bringing our supplications to God. We ask and we ask and we ask for more. We're like those two, two daughters of the leeches in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15. You guys remember chapter 30, verse 15 of Proverbs? The two, two daughters of the leech. It says this, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Right? We're like leeches. We go to God like a spoiled child. Dad, give me this. Dad, give me that. Son, you haven't said thank you for the last eight things that I bought you. And here you are asking for more? You know, we teach our kids that this is, this is bad manners. How badly mannered are we oftentimes to God? One thing I said to the youth on Wednesday night was that We're quick to latch on to this verse in Philippians because of the hope that it offers for anxiety, but we neglect part of that prescription within those verses to combat the anxiety. 
And that's gratitude. That's thanksgiving. We forget that it's even there. It's so easy to quote it. You guys didn't even notice, except Mike, the astute one. Notice that I left those out. Guys, it's nearly impossible for despondency and anxiety to remain in a heart that's overflowing with thankfulness. Remember that old hymn, Count Your Blessings? The the chorus says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Thankfulness. The worthy walk is a thankful walk. And when we think of the glorious things that God has done for us that we sang about this morning, don't we have an infinite number of reasons to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Paul gives the Colossians three things in verses 12 to 3 that should give them and us ample reasons for gratitude. They are these. I'll go through these quickly. The first cause for gratitude is our inheritance. Our inheritance from the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Those who qualify to receive an inheritance are heirs. They're family. They are sons and daughters. Before our salvation, God was our judge. Now he's our father. It was not through our own effort that we're qualified. It's through faith in Christ's work on the cross that he's adopted us into his family. Through the Spirit's work of of regeneration, convincing us of the truth and the importance of the gospel, enabling us to believe it, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, as we read earlier in 1 Peter 1.3. And as family, we have an inheritance. And that inheritance is a, a share of the whole a share of the whole. In other words, it's an individual portion carved out just for you. Just for you. Just for me. It's a portion of the whole that's distributed amongst all of the saints in light who dwell in the light of God's will. And light in this verse is referring in an intellectual sense to truth. And in a moral sense, it's to purity. The saints' inheritance is in light. It's in truth, it's in purity, where God himself dwells. And this is a cause for gratitude, amen? Our inheritance. The second cause for thanksgiving is our rescue, in verse 13. The second cause for thanksgiving is rescue. Verse 13 says, For he, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness. And I love this word rescue that that Paul uses here. It's the Greek word ruhamai. And it means to, to draw to oneself to draw to oneself. And it conveys the image of soldiers breaking through the lines of the enemy's camp and breaking open the prison camps to release the prisoners of war. Like a U.S. marshal crashing through the door of a child trafficking ring, eliminating the threat and pulling those little ones out to safety, rescuing them. Out of that house of horrors, think how those little ones cling to their rescuers. Think how thankful they are when they're brought to safety. That's what Jesus, our hero, has done for us. He's the hero who invaded Satan's domain and he drew us captives out to himself. Think of the cruelty in which you used to live. Think of the darkness that was your soul before Christ broke through and he snatched you to himself. And his rescue was not gradual. You weren't progressively delivered from Satan's grasp. It was the new birth. You were instantly delivered from the dominion of darkness. Charles Wesley wrote a masterpiece hymn called And Can It Be? And I think it portrays this this so beautifully, this rescue. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin, and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth. I followed thee. Hallelujah. We're rescued. And is this not a cause to thank 
the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you rescued me. Thank you. The third cause for thanksgiving that that Paul gives us here in the text is transference. Verse 13, he continues, and after having rescued us, he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The father didn't just rescue us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of the son. He didn't leave us in some intermediate state between the two places, pulling us out of sin and darkness under the control of the evil God of this age, Satan, and then leaving us in the middle to fend for ourselves. There you go. You're free. Be warm. Be well fed. Good luck. Hope to see you later. That's not what God did. That's not the way of the Father. God took you out of the domain of darkness, out of the domain of darkness, and He transferred you, transplanting you into the kingdom of His beloved Son, along with all the saints in light who were likewise delivered. He granted you new citizenship in a kingdom that exists right now. Right now. The world doesn't see it. The world won't acknowledge it yet. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is king today. And you as sons and daughters of God are brother princes and sister princesses to King Jesus. And someday your inheritance in that better land will be more visible and realer than anything else you've ever experienced in all of your life. What a glorious cause to give thanks. Thanksgiving is a mark of a worthy, God-pleasing walk. God smiles when we give thanks. And as subjects of the kingdom, we must properly represent the king. We must walk worthy. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. With this knowledge of God and His will controlling you, walk worthy. Walk worthy. In a word, we should be thankful for salvation. Salvation, that's the great, glorious cause for thanksgiving. In verse 14, Paul encapsulates the work of the beloved Son. Thanksgiving is given to God the Father in the preceding verses because this whole scheme, this whole plan of salvation and rescue comes from the infinite wisdom and mind of God the Father. But now Paul directs the readers to the Son because the Son is the one who worked out the brilliant plan to save. And in this beloved Son, we have two things. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a word whose context belongs in a slave market. It refers to the ransom price. We sang about the ransom price. And that's the price paid to secure the freedom of a slave. The price of your freedom and mine was blood. Not the blood of our captors, not the blood of the enemies of our soul. This is not the blood that was shed. It was the hero's blood. Our hero came to pay for our freedom. He didn't come with a sword to kill the enemy. Someday, he will. He came with a cross to pay the ultimate price of his own life. How the redemption of Jesus shouts the love of God. Oh, love of God. How rich and pure, how measureless, how strong. And after securing your freedom by paying the ransom price, he grants you the forgiveness of sins. The word for forgiveness in the Greek is the word aphesin, and it simply means pardon or remission of a penalty, like a governor or a president issuing a pardon that lets a convicted person out of prison. That's the meaning of forgiveness. The verb form of that Greek word for forgiveness carries with it the sense of sending away. Sending away. And when we consider this, we see a a beautiful picture emerge. The father sends the beloved son to pay our ransom price. 
Our hero rescues us from the domain of darkness, drawing us close to himself and sending our sins and their penalties far away from us. This is redemption and forgiveness. This is salvation. Psalm 103, 12 to 13 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Micah 7, 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. What a glorious salvation we have. What a glorious cause for thanksgiving we have. Do you not want to know more the will of this God? Do you not want to walk in a manner worthy of this Lord and to make him smile? After all, he's done for you. Do you not want to bear the fruit for this God? Do you not want to grow and increase in your knowledge of him? Don't you want to have a strength to endure so that you can persevere to the destination's end of seeing the face of the beloved son and hero who redeemed us and forgave us? Don't you have ample causes for thanksgiving? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us so much to marvel at and wonder at in these few verses. Lord, how rich is your truth? How rich is the gospel? Lord, fill us with the knowledge of this gospel. Fill us, Lord, so that we can walk worthy before you, bearing fruit, growing, strengthened, and thankful. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand, if you would, for the benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Depart in his peace. Amen.